listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We're going to continue our, our Joshua series with um, kind of more of an introduction. So last week I, I spoke more about what leadership and, and change and things are going to look like a little bit. Uh, today I really want to dive into the, the book of Joshua more. Uh, not necessarily going to be looking at particular passages in Joshua today, but more introducing how we can understand the book of Joshua. Uh, it is a, a book that is often approached with a lot of caution. Uh, as Christians, it's a, it's, a, it's a book that I often say we, we like to take a black highlighter to. Do you, if you get it, you get that joke? Black highlighter? We, there, we, there's parts of that book that we don't like. And so we black, we highlight them out and we say, we don't, we, we're going to pretend we don't see those. But I'm going to, to talk to you a little bit today about how we can interpret these things because it's so important to understand how we interpret things. And, and I'm a, a bit of a, a grammar nerd. Uh, I don't speak all that well, but I, I do like grammar. Is there any other grammar nerds in here? Got a few of you? Good, good, good. Well, I, I like a good idiom. Um, I like a good idiom. It's a, it's a phrase that is uh, not to really be taken literal. Uh, but a phrase, if you did take literal, would be really funny, right? So we say in English quite a bit of, uh, you know, the grass is greener on the other side is an, idi- an idiom. Um, you know, Jennifer is a party pooper is, a, is an idiom. Uh, definitely not one you want to take literal in that case. That's pretty mean to Jennifer. Um, but one of my, my favorites, um, I minored in German in college, and I got to spend a lot of time with, with Germans. And uh, they had a, an idiom that was, da liegt der Hund begraben. Da liegt der Hund begraben. Any Germans in here? Okay. Well, you're going to learn something today. Um, it means where the dog is buried. That's where the dog is buried. Uh, now, if you took that literally, you'd say, well, who killed the dog? Right? And why is the dog buried there? Right? But really, it just means like you're, you're exposing something. You're, that's where the dog is buried. You're exposing something. Right? It's a way of saying in German that you're, you're showing, you're casting the light onto something by saying that the dog is buried there, which is a very German thing to say. Um, but it, it's important to understand, I, I say that, I'm not just giving you a fun nugget of an idiom here. Um, I say that because interpretation of, of a language, of a, of a book, of, of a culture requires immersion into that culture. Right? I, I didn't learn that idiom through going through a textbook in German class. I learned it by hanging out with Germans who spoke it, understood the culture, and understood how to use it. And who knows, they could have been totally messing with me and said, hey, we taught this American kid this weird word phrase, and I probably wouldn't have any idea. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust them and tell me that it was a real thing that, that I'm not just making fun of. They're not making fun of me. But um, I say that because a lot of times what happens, especially with the, the book of Joshua or any time in the Bible, is we have taken their culture out of the interpretation and we have put our culture into it. So we decide to, to view the way that they're writing their books in a way that fits our 21st century worldviews. And that is, is very, I think, in disrespectful to the original audience, the, the ancient audience, the, the Bronze, Age, Bronze Age Israelites who are the people within the book of Joshua. Nobody likes being taken out of context. I know, I'm sure you don't, in conversations, if someone has taken your words out of context and used them differently than you intended to use them. And I'm sure that you would never want to do that to somebody else. So we should also do that with the Bible, right? And what happens in the book of Joshua is people have taken the context out. They have have stepped out of the immersion aspect of trying to understand Israel in their own terms and decided, hey, we're going to dictate what the book of Joshua means. 
And when that happens, there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of misappropriation of principles within that text. And it's really a misidentifier of the book of Joshua. And that's why I'm going to read you a quote here in a minute of of the dangers of of misusing the book of Joshua. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a pretty uh, renowned atheist, uh, speaks a lot uh, against God. He had this to say about the, the book of Joshua. It says, Joshua is a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres. It records in the xenophobic relish of which it does, also, of which it does so. As the charming old song exudingly has it, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. There's none like good old Joshua at the battle of Jericho. Good old Joshua didn't rest until he utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. And as Christians, we go, yeah, that's a little uncomfortable, right? As followers of Christ, we go, how do we apply this into our, our modern walk? How do we look at this today? And, and many of the times, as you, when you first read the book of Joshua, you can't help but kind of filter it through the 20th century, right? How do we filter the 20th century of, of genocide and more people being killed in the 20th century than any other century in, ha- in mankind, but this captures what Richard Dox is saying is captures the modern worldly view of the book of Joshua, which is why the black highlighter comes into play when often we start to study this book, when we start to try to pull what the meaning is from this book, because there's things that just make us very uncomfortable when we read the book of Joshua. And that's okay. If you're, if you're reading that, you're like, boy, that's very disturbing. I'm with you. There are disturbing things. That you're like, boy, I'm not really sure how to handle this. But I tell you now, Joshua isn't being met fairly by Richard Dawkins in this quote. He's not being met fairly in the sense of he's not really taking the time to immerse himself into the culture of the Bronze Age Israelites. How are they describing um, the genre of literary styles, all of that, when looking at this book? He is filtering the book of Joshua through a 20th century lens, through a modern worldview, which is something that if we do that with any scripture, any, any book of the Bible, we, we're asking for trouble. He takes the text out of context and then makes his own suppositions, makes his own applications, makes his own principles. This is just about a a bloodthirsty God who wants massacre and genocide, is what Richard Dawkins wants people to think about with this book. He goes on to say, the Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable, indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs, the Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but, it not, but it's not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. You, do you think Richard has an agenda here? In some of the things he's trying to say? Do you see how he's using his very 20th century worldview to filter through what Book of Joshua is saying? That if he was to, you can make the Bible say anything you want by filtering it through your own presuppositions and worldviews and, and, and lenses, right? I mean, I, I, I can read Greek and Hebrew, and I tell you, I can make the Bible the same thing I wanted to say. It, it's a scary thing if you take the text out of a context. Context helps us keep us rooted into what the original meaning was so that we can pull the principles and applications that we're going to pull through. And that's what we're going to do through this series, is we're going to look at Joshua and how the original audience was, was reading and understanding what God was doing in the time of the Israelites going into Canaan. What is the principle being taught here? What are, what are we learning about God through this, and how can we apply it in our walk today? Because there are, is a lot here, especially just in the main theme of the book, which we're going to look at today, 
that is, that is very practical to the Christian walk today. So let's talk a little bit how we interpret the book of Joshua. And, and the number one question you probably have, or you may have if you read through this book, if you've never read through it, is how do we handle all the violence in Joshua? How, do, how does this Joshua and the, the promised land and the invasion of, of Canaan, how do we reconcile that with the Jesus of the New Testament that says we're supposed to love our neighbors? Right? There's, I had a, an old co-worker of mine and I was kind of sharing with him a little bit about the Bible and who Jesus is. And he goes, you know, I get it, Kelly. Yeah, like, but when I read the Bible, it's, it's two different gods. You have the Old Testament God full of wrath and vengeance and massacres. And you have this New Testament Jesus that's like the fluffy, I love everybody Jesus, right? It seems like two different gods, right? And he, he definitely did not understand the book of Joshua and how it can be applied he very clearly never read the book of Revelation because that goes off the wall, right? Um, and so, you know, but that's kind of the way the world looks at this book. That kind of way they look at the, the Old Testament. And so how do we handle the problem of violence? And, and really this, this explanation goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 7. And interpreting Joshua starts really at Sinai, where the Lord gives a promise to Israel on how he will give them the land. Now, this is important that he gives them the land, that Israel is not to take the land, he is to give it to them. He, they are to inherit the land. That's, that's significant. The promised land is not something that Israel is to take by force. It is something that they were promised to have by Abraham, or through Abraham, through the line, and to be given to God. It is a promise that God made to Israel to have. Now, the one that really gets people, though, if you read Deuteronomy 7, 2, he says this, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, the, the Canaanites, and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Again, we're like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. How are we supposed to, to reconcile you will completely destroy them? And again, that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Who's uncomfortable with that statement? Yeah. I think we all would be a little bit, right? We, we follow Jesus. We know we're not supposed to destroy people. Like we know enough about following God to know that we're not supposed to destroy people. So how do we reconcile this? Well, one thing we have to start with in its context. So this word there is the word harem. Harem. You got to really get some phlegm in it. Harem. Harem. It's a fun word to say. But it's a, it's a, it's a conquest word. Right? So in the ancient Near East, they had conquest literary genres. We don't really have that today. We don't really have that in our culture where you have a conquest literary genre where if you're talking about a conquest of a particular land, it fits a particular style of writing. I can't think of any modern applications to that. We don't really do that, where you have a particular set of words or styles that you use to, to relay a conquest of land. The ancient world did. The ancient Near East had a lot of it. So if you were to read a Babylonian text or an Assyrian text, you would go, this sounds eerily like the book of Joshua because they're all living in the same pool. They're all swimming in that same cultural pool. Okay? And so what the book of Joshua is, is a conquest literary text. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see the Israelites using words that they know to describe what happens in a conquest literary text, which is the word chrem. Haram. Okay? You guys are going to walk out today going, Haram. <laughs> but basically, what it does not mean 
is genocide. Okay, the word that, that Richard Dawkins takes, he says, oh, that means complete wipeout of, of, a, of a race of people. We think 20th century Nazism. We think of the, the terrible things that have happened through the, year, through the centuries of history where entire people groups are wiped out. That is not what harem means. That was so foreign to an Israelite that we can't even attempt to apply that into this text. What harem means is really the idea of removing from use. Removing from use. You need to remove from use the land to which the people are living on. And we're going to see why a little bit later on, why this is the command. You must remove from use and toeva, cast out, toeva, cast out those things that are going to be of influence to you. Remove from use and cast out those things that are going to be of use to you. Because what is Israel's splinter in the side for their history is they do not toeva, and it ends up actually corrupting and influencing and separating them from their Lord God, right? So the command here is remove from use the land of which these people are sitting on. It has nothing to do with the people itself. It's about the land of which it sit on and ta'eva. Now again, we think, oh, well, this is just Western imperialism, right? This is just guys coming in and taking over land again from the indigenous. Again, this is not that case. Right? When, when you see the, the way that the land is spoken of about God is it's that all the earth is God's, right? Everything under the heavens is God's, right? And if you're in the ancient Near East and you're, especially if you're a Canaanite, a Babylon, Assyrian, Egyptian, whatever it is, you're thinking this land is associated with those gods. So if you're in Egypt, they would have said these are the land of the Egyptian gods. If you were in Canaan, this is the land of Baal and Asherah and, and those Canaanite gods, those Phoenician gods, and same with Babylonia. And so what God is doing here is really significant. He's saying, I am carving out a land that is for me. This is the land of Yahweh. This is the land of the Lord your God. It's not about the people. The people are going to steward this land. In fact, we're, getting, we're kind of getting a, an Eden like 4.0 at this point. We're getting a land of which God is dwelling amongst his people, where the people are stewarding the land of which was given to them, and which they are caring for in relationship with their God. You guys see the connections here between a promised land and that of an Eden. Okay, these are shadows of what we'll see fulfilled later. So you go, if you fast forward a few chapters into Revelation 21.22, we start to see new Edens and things like this. We start to see the, the completion of the shadow that is happening here in this passage. So when we see that the, the English, the idea of completely destroying them, this isn't actually a, an idiom. They, it captures the idea of chrem. It's the idea of we must remove from use. If you were to walk into a, an Old Testament class nowadays, this is how they would teach it. Is this is chrem. It means remove from use. And they would give you 15 examples from the ancient Near East on why that's the case. And this is also significant because when you read the book of Joshua, and I don't know if we'll go into too much detail in this series, but when you read it, you'll see that the ones that are mostly highlighted with violence are the kings of the nations that opposed the Lord God. You read about the kings, and that makes you pretty uncomfortable. There's some pretty graphic nature of how the kings are treated that oppose the Lord God because it was the kings that owned the land. Right? It was the kings that were the identifying markers of those of the Canaanites who opposed the Lord God. And so there's, there's emphasis there on the violence for the, amongst the kings that oppose the Lord God in particular. 
And so we see that harem is really this idea of God taking land that is his already, inheriting it and giving it to Israel. It was never meant to completely wipe out. It was never supposed to be interpreted as wiping entire people groups out. It was never supposed to be connected to our modern idea of genocide. Because if that was the case, the next verse wouldn't make much sense. And that happens a lot. When you're writing the, reading the Bible and you go, this verse doesn't make much sense, just keep going. Sometimes you just got to keep going a little bit more. In verse 3, it says, you must not intermarry with them. Now, you don't intermarry with people you just wiped off the face of the planet. Okay, so, I mean, Harem is not talking about mass extinction of Canaanites here. Okay, you must not give your daughters to their sons or, or take their daughters for your sons. Again, this idea of intermarrying, if, if the idea was to wipe them off the face of the planet, God wouldn't say, oh, by the way, don't marry them either. Okay? That, that wouldn't have made much sense. In fact, what we see here is God's actually giving Israel rules to, to know how to live among foreigners. How to treat foreigners. If you look at Leviticus 19.34, he says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Right? This isn't about casting out everyone who's different. This isn't about killing everybody who's different or doesn't think the way you do or believe the way you do. It's saying, hey, there's also going to be foreigners living among you. There's going to be Canaanites. There's going to be, he, there's going to be Babylonians. There's going to be Assyrians that live among you. Treat them as your native born. Treat them as you would an Israelite. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So clearly this isn't this, hey, if you're different than us, we're just going to wipe you off the face of the planet. Right? This is a, there's, a, there's an actual deeper concept happening here that the Lord is after. I'm not saying there were no Canaanites harmed in the making of the book of Joshua. There were, there were some Canaanites hurt and wounded and killed in the book of Joshua. Right? But this is a, a conquest narrative, something that it's saying that this is going to be the Lord's conquest of the land that now belongs to him, that he is putting his name into. This is, this is very significant to the story as well, as, as God is putting his name in the land of Israel, that this area, this geographical place on a map will have the name of the Lord within it for the nations around them to recognize this. Okay, the land is going to be where the Lord God takes up his residency. Again, we think Eden. Eden is the, is the graphic here. And, and we see this lived out. If you, if you read 2 Kings 5, um, 17, there's a, there's a guy named Naaman. Now, Naaman is a, a dominant Assyrian leader. And he gets leprosy. Terrible disease. Something I can't even fathom. Leprosy. And he's so desperate. He hears about this prophet in Israel, and he goes, I, I've tried everything. I don't know what to do. And, and he ends up getting cured of, of his leprosy by getting washed in the water, right? Well, what does Naaman do? Do you guys remember? He takes up soil from Israel. He says, give me, give me some of that soil from the land that Yahweh, the Lord God, dwells. Because the land is directly tied to the name of God. In his mind, in the way that he understands the world and the culture of the ancient Near East, it says, where the land is, the God must dwell as well. And so they're saying, boy, just give me some of that soil so I can like, have some of it in case this leprosy comes back. Because there's something in this soil where the Lord God dwells that I want. The Lord God of Israel did this. So this is something that he's doing. He's planting his name. He's staking up residence within this land to say, this is where the name of the Lord God dwells. 
It's not a conquest for Israel to wipe out people who are different than them. It's a place for God to dwell so that they can be a blessing to the nations around them. And if you read about the book of Joshua, when you really get into it, they don't, other than Jericho, there's really nobody who attacks. They don't really attack anybody. They get attacked by everybody. In fact, we're going to see how God includes and brings in Canaanites. And, and when you really look at what it means to be Israel, it's going to change your mind most likely about what it means to, to be Israel. Because there's people who are going to be brought in that are not native born, and there's going to be people cast out who were. This is very significant in the book of Joshua. Because what we see within the book of Joshua too is, is that the identity of Israel and, and what it means to be in, in be with and dwell among the Lord God is one of the main themes within the entire book. And I don't know if you probably thought of it this way, that the book of Joshua was really more about your identity. Who are you? Than it is about conquest, massacre, and what we might think of genocide today. It's really more about identity. We have any uh, fans of The Office in here? It's like three of you. Great, this is going to go well. You may not get this reference. Well, there's some fans of The Office. If you are, um, I mean, it's one of my favorite shows. I'm Amy. Amy thought I was really funny when we were dating. Uh, because I quoted The Office all the time, and she had never seen it. And so when she started watching after we were married, she's like, I feel like I got scammed. So, but, you know, we're almost 10 years now, so it worked. We're still going strong. But in the episode of, of The Office, one of the main characters, Jim, he antagonizes uh, his colleague Dwight, one of the, the good comedic cycles of the show, and, and he dresses up like Dwight. Now, Dwight has a very distinct look, and I think I have a picture of him, if we have one here. There you go. Now, he, now he starts to act like Dwight, right? He starts saying, you know, bears, beats, Battlestar Galactica, right? If you know the show, again, you have to be there. Inside joke. And, and Dwight's response, once he figures out what's going on, is, identity theft is not a joke, Jim, right? Millions of people are affected every year, right? He's trying to really, he, it really gets under his skin that Jim is, is identifying as, as Dwight and is kind of poking fun at him, which is one of my, my favorite scenes of the entire show. And um, I don't want to poke if you've had identity theft. Obviously, you're like, this isn't funny. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to poke at you if you've had that happen to you. But I think what happens is, especially when you think about the book of Joshua, is that, and when you just think about us as Christians today and we, how do we apply things like identity into our life, there were a lot of things that have stolen our identity, right? And, and Israel, at this time of Joshua, was still forging their identity. They were still walking with the Lord God going, who is this God that saved us out of Egypt, that brought us in the wilderness for 40 years, and now is on the, into the promised land? Who is this? We're still, the, the identity of them is still being forged, and I think the, the identity that we also have a lot of times in our walk is we're still being forged as well. Do you guys still feel like you're being forged in who you are in Christ? Yes. Yeah, I know I do. hope I'm not the only one. There are two of us in here, <laughs> right? There's still a lot of stuff that we have to work through that we're, we're walking with our Lord with that is starting to trying to get into this place of who do we identify as as, as being in Christ, and things like the idea of, of, of uh, the, the, the casting or do not associate with, 
Those are things that are identifiable terms. Those are things that, that relate to identity, right? Because what we relate to, what we live amongst, what we bring to our tables, a lot of times will influence who we are. And that's exactly what the book of Joshua is, is one of the main themes, is if you are going to bring in those things that oppose the Lord God, they will influence you. And sometimes we have the kind of the naivete of being like, well, I can influence those things. You know? I mean, I've done that before where you think, I've, I'm a spiritual person. You know, I can influence these things. And then before you know, you're a weekend going, yeah, I'm being influenced. I'm the one that's being influenced. And this is what's going to happen with Israel. Right? And so often, too, as we're walking and we're being forged by God, a lot of times what happens is we are also being influenced by things for the good and for the bad. We are being associated with things. So as you read this book, as we talk about this book, as we start to explore this book more, I want you to be thinking about those things that are ta'eva. Right? What are those things that we're associating with? Things that we have claimed even as for ourselves. Things that may not be what God has created for us to be associated with. Because what it means to really be Israel, and what we're going to explore more through the weeks to come, is Israel is not a genetic race of people. It's not a genetic race of people. It's not these, these people from the ancient Near East. What it means is that you are committed to the mission and the Lord's purposes. Those who are committed to the Lord's purposes. And, and one way of saying that, because is, and the way the New Testament really captures it, is the word faith. Now, faith to us a lot of times comes off as just this intellectual belief, right? Like, I just have this belief in my head, right? But the word is in Greek is the word pistos. Pistos. It's, it's really this idea of faith, has a way of trust, but it also has this connotation of loyalty and allegiance, right? And, and with the Lord God is forging Israel right now as a people group, as all those who are, who are loyal and, and are allegiant to the Lord God. That's when you see things like Rahab and Achan. We see the, con- the differences between a pe- person who has faith, who is pursuing a, a loyalty or allegiance to the Lord God, or who is not. Right. So when you think about your own faith, when you think about how you're being forged right now, are you more faithful to those things that should be toiva, or are you more faithful and loyal to those things that the Lord God says you are? And that's what it means to be Israel. If you live from that type of a place, do you live a, a life that is marked out by a, a allegiance and loyalty to the Lord God? Not to a person, not to an organization, but to the Lord Jesus. To the Lord God himself. Because if someone who is in faith with the Lord and not to other things, there is an identity then that is rooted in them. There is an identity then rooted in that person that says, I have my loyalty is to the Lord God, to the Lord Jesus. My faith is in him. My trust is in him. I know he is unfailing. Rather than these things that have tried to mark me and, and make me something that I'm not. In fact, I have, a, I have a visual for you guys. For all you visual learners out there. I have a coin here. This is the biggest coin I could find. You can zoom in. Um, it's a coin my, my grandfather gave me. And uh, it's got a, a, a lovely image of Lady Liberty on the front of it. Lady Liberty on the front of it. And, and I like to use this analogy because I think this represents how we were originally created in Genesis 1. The image bearers of God. 
All of humanity, male and female, were blessed and created in the image of God. Now, an image means that you're a representative. Like, this is a representative of Lady Liberty. She's not, I don't really have her right here on this coin. She's a representative of Lady Liberty, right? And if you think about yourself as what it means to be a human, humanity means that you are a representative of God. That's how you were originally created. How all of us were, were to be representatives of God within creation. We steward, we rule over the animals and the beasts, Right? That's, that's what we were created to do. We were created to be farmers. Praise God. Hallelujah. Right? But what happens, and, and this, is, this is who we are originally. This is how we can look at this and go, wow, this is what humanity was created to be. But what happens is we start to be influenced by things. We start to, to decide, you know what, God? I think I'm smarter than you. And we start to see some of that image covered up. And we say, you know what? My parents did a lot of damage to me. So you have trauma that begins to make it difficult to see the image that you were created to be. And you have some worries and anxieties that make it very difficult to see your worth and value of what you were created to be. And pretty soon, before you know it, the things that you're associated with, the influences you have, the of all things that were like, you know what? That's not who I am, but they have become placed over the image of who you were, of what you were created to be. So when you're walking and you're being forged by your identity, a lot of times the things that are forging us is our trauma, our addictions, the choices that we've made, and what we have done is allowed those things to be our identifying markers. And a lot of times you'll hear it. Like I've, I've buried people who have ministered to, the last things they said to me were, Kelly, I'm just an addict. That's just who I am. They've accepted that as their identity. They didn't realize that under all of this, there was something of great value and worth to the Lord. Right? And so I ask you, is what is covering up your image today? What are the things, the insecurities, the choices that you're reeling with today that you're too afraid to to withdraw from, to push out? Because I'll tell you right now, the Lord... Is the same God who conquest, who led the conquest into to, to the promised land, who did those amazing things we're going to read about. That same God says, I want to put my name in you. I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. I want your life to be the name of the Lord, to live within you. That's, that's what it means that the Holy Spirit fall into you, is that you're dwelling with God at all times. That's what it means to gather as a church. The very temple of God is called the, the gathering place of the, of, of the temples. It's like little mini temples all put together into one big one. That there's a presence of God here in this place. And when we put our faith in Jesus, when we say, you know what, I'm going to tie all these insecurities, I'm going to tie all these, these, these past traumas, and I'm going to work through these things, I'm going I'm to look to you for my identity, we start to see some of those things become less of an identity marker in our life. Do they, are they part of our story? Absolutely. Absolutely they are. But they're not who you are anymore. You see the difference? We all have stories. But what Jesus is doing is he is re- removing the influences that should be ta'va. He's removing from use. He's harem, those things. And he is making us into who he had created or us to originally be. 
In fact, the Greek word for salvation is the word sozo. It's my nickname for my cat. Sozo. It means to be returned back to original intent. Right? So when God is saying, when you're saying, boy, I'm being saved by the Lord Jesus, it means you are being transformed back into he created you to be at the very beginning a representative of him in creation. Think about that. God has placed you in the places you are, not to be identified by the things that are ta'va, but to be identified by those things that are associated with him. To love your neighbor, to love people, to serve one another, to live a life like Jesus after him is how we're supposed to be identified. Not those things that have covered us up. Not those things that have broke us. Not those things that have, have, have brought us down to our, our worst times. Paul says it very well in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a part of the new creation. The old has passed away. The darkness that influenced us, the influences, the, the, the things that tried to identify us, to, to capture our identities, he has redeemed and reclaimed for himself. And see, the new has come. The new has come. Who's ready for the new to be here? for the newness to come, to get rid of the old identities, to not be associated with those things anymore, but to be able to see, maybe for the first time, the truth of what it is to be a person in Christ which is free from the influences of sin. Amen? Let's pray. I just want to take a minute to to respond to this as well. You know, if you're someone who is really struggling with identity, this is a very real struggle. It's hard to to not be associated with things of the past, to to make them part of who you are. But I want to say that I think the Lord really wants to free you from that today. Not to just say your story doesn't matter, stories always matter, but not to have that be a part of who you are because you are in Christ. So let's bow our heads. And if that's you, you I just want you to respond by raising your hand. It's just between you and the Lord, but it's good to make that acknowledgement. Father, I I pray that we are a people who are identified by you. Lord, you are with us. You are in us. Lord, you, you are here amongst us today. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with the things of the past that have claimed their identity, the traumas, the brokenness, the decisions they've made. Lord, the things that haunt us as we lay in bed at night and, and we keep our eyes awake, that, the anxieties. Lord, I, I pray that our people here will recognize that those are not who we are. Yes, they are part of our story, but they are not who we are. We are in you. We are children of the living God. Lord, you are with us. You call us friend, Lord. You have reclaimed us. You have redeemed us. You have cleaned us. You have made us into the people You're forging us into the people that we need to be here and who you want us to be. So help us to to not associate with those things that have, have brought us pain and brokenness and hurt. Recognize them as what things, things that they are, but those things do not cover us. You cover us, Lord. 
Lord, help us to walk freely from this place of, of hurt and shame and brokenness and embrace the life that you have for us, the, the lack of condemnation that we can live in every day, the freedom and liberty that brings with walking with you. Lord, help us to live a life like this, a life that is dedicated to, to seeing people free in you, to walk in the, in the way that you have created us to be, to be representatives of you here in creation. Lord, I pray for anybody who's raising their hands out there, Lord, that they are seeking to be freed. And so I just pray that you will guide them, lead them, walk with them, help them to see themselves in you rather than those things that have been told about them or what they think they should be or whatever that is. That they see you for who you are and what you want to do within them and how you want to mold them and make them into someone who represents you in this creation. And all God's people say, Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.